There's an old saying from the early days of the internet, or at least possibly from the 1980s or thereabouts, that the internet treats censorship as damage and roots around it. And Tor is literally, its raison d'etre is to root around censorship. So it's arguable that Tor is the future of the internet. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about Tor. We've talked about Tor a couple of times on the show, but not like we're going to understand it today. Tor, as we've mentioned before, is the open source project that lets people browse the internet more anonymously by routing their traffic across different nodes before making a final connection between their device and a desired website. This is not the standard model for how we typically access the internet. Instead, whenever you open up a browser and you go to a website, you make a direct connection with that website. That website can then track your activity and tangentially, your internet service provider can see what website you're visiting and also track that activity. Tor eliminates that by, again, passing your traffic through different nodes, which means that once your connection is made to a website, that website thinks you're coming from somewhere else. That's uh, Tor pretty much for you, the user who is concerned about privacy. But Tor serves a function for websites and the owners of web servers too. With Tor, web servers can build a sort of Tor version of their website, which is called an Onion site. Um, a quick explanation there. Tor is actually an acronym, the Onion Router, T-O-R. Onion because of the layers that your traffic is routed through. Get it? The motivation behind creating Onion sites is similar to the motivation behind browsing with Tor. Some web servers want to host anonymous websites. If you connect to one of these Onion sites using the Tor browser, all the data that's sent back and forth between you and the website is encrypted and cannot be tracked. And all of this sounds very niche, but you should know that some of the biggest websites out there offer an Onion site, including the New York Times, BuzzFeed, ProPublica, Facebook, Twitter, and as of just last week, The Guardian. Today, to help us understand what goes into developing an Onion site for a major platform and the importance of Tor itself for the internet and for security, we're speaking with Alec Muffet, security researcher. Alec, welcome to the show. Ah, hi. Thank you, David, for inviting me. Absolutely. We are excited to have you here and to get just right into it to dig in. In March, on Twitter, you announced that you'd successfully helped Twitter's engineers launch an Onion site for Twitter. Uh, for listeners who have only a passing knowledge of, again, the Tor network, what did this announcement mean? Like, what did it signify? What had happened? That's a great question, and it's uh, a little bit involved. First up, I really should say, kudos for doing this really goes to the Twitter engineering team. I just provided support for some software I'd written, which helps glue the Tor network into your existing website. They took that and they integrated it for Twitter, they made all the necessary arrangements for Docker and scaling and all the other cool stuff that they have to do to make it fit for Twitter uh, deployment. 
I was basically just helping them with the stuff that I had written. Otherwise, it's like 99.99% of their all work and they should really get all of the uh, praise <laughs> for doing that. The question of what it does, what it offers to Twitter, is it offers assurance for people who want to connect to Twitter from places, typically repressive regimes or possibly just from anywhere in the world where they are worried about being surveilled, blocked, monitored, um, and so forth, to get to their website. You spoke earlier about anonymity. And this was the model of what's called onion networking, or some people call the dark web, from about a decade ago. People were talking about websites like the Silk Road and where you go to, to an anonymous marketplace to buy drugs and guns and things like that. That's how it was perceived. That's how people looked at the functionality and the features of Tor. And I, I don't want to sort of uh, embiggen my role in all of this, but way back in about 2011, 2012, I was listening to a documentary about Tor on one of the BBC radio stations here in the UK. And they talked about how the Silk Road had bulletproof security. Now, I was just out of 17 years working for Sun Microsystems, including a stint for professional services, building systems for banks, for ISPs, building systems for trading floors. And the idea of something offering bulletproof security sounded really cool to me. So I dug into it. And the really interesting thing about Tor is that it doesn't just provide anonymity. It provides cryptographic assurance of whom you are talking to if you're using it in this onion networking mode, in this dark web mode. So that as opposed to well, when we connect to a website using an IPv4 or an IPv6 address, we type that into the web browser saying HTTP colon slash slash 192.168.1.1 or whatever. <laughs> and you know as well as me, that traffic can be intercepted, it can be ARP spoofed, it can be redirected to another server, BGP things can happen to it, which means that it can be routed through another country and surveilled. It can be spied upon that you're talking to this IP address and so forth. You've got no assurance at the IP layer. And then you've got even less assurance because DNS maps a host name to an IP address and somebody may tamper with your DNS server. That's another mode of attack. You likewise are familiar with this. And there are so many security risks up the stack. Whereas with Onion Networking, with the Tor networking, the thing that you type into the web browser bar is the cryptographic key of the website that you want to talk to. It's from you to them, end-to-end -end secure. And the fact that you don't actually also, because you're setting up a circuit from yourself to the web server, the web server doesn't have any notion of source IP address or source onion address because there's no such thing. So what you have is a cryptographic circuit, a tunnel from you to a cryptographically assured network address at the far end in the same way you might use IPv6, but it's embedded at layer three. And it's uh, the namespace that you're using is the cryptographic key of the uh, machine you're connecting to. There's no way to fake it. It's really strong network circuit, a really strong network connection. It's essentially a brand new networking stack for the internet. We've got IPv4, we've got IPv6. Now we've also got Tor networking on top of that, and it brings a whole pile of things which the rest of the internet is only starting to catch up with. So look at that and think not about anonymity. Think instead about 
you have people who want to connect to your website and be absolutely sure that they are connected to the real thing. That's the value proposition of adding an onion address to your service. It means that people in Russia at the moment, in China, possibly in Vietnam, anywhere in the world, Turkey, all of these people can access your website and be absolutely certain that they are talking to your genuine site and that they are using tools which are designed to preserve secrecy and privacy and reduce your digital footprint. So the value proposition of Tor and Onion Addresses is giving people a nudge towards using tools that guarantee integrity and privacy and unblockability of communication. I'm sorry, that's a really long explanation. <laughs> But I, I think it sort of cuts across a whole pile of things we're going to wind up talking about during this interview. You mentioned that value proposition, and I was immediately trying to think of, like, who is that attractive to? And it somewhat makes sense to me when I even think about the names that I read, the New York Times, BuzzFeed, ProPublica, a nonprofit uh, reporting outfit, um, which does outstanding work. These are all organizations that want people from repressive regimes from areas that uh, suffer surveillance, they want them to be able to access their information. Am I getting that right? Like, is that, it's like, you know, these are, this is attractive to news organizations, but is it, you know, it also has to be attractive to other folks. Obviously, Twitter is one of them. I'm just trying to tie together, you know, what these folks have in common. Well, it's not just these folks. I mean, scroll back to 2012, when I was first investigating Tor and Onion Networking and so forth. And my use case for it was, hey, wouldn't this be a really cool backhaul for IPsec networks in order to have a out-of-band negotiation of key changes without using Ike? Your VPN endpoints, your IPsec routers and so forth, they would all be using Tor to synchronize amongst themselves. And you, know, you could throw away Ike and all of the third-party certificate authorities and all of that hierarchical stuff, which most of the time you don't actually need. But on the other hand, you'd still be better doing better than having static keys hard-coded into your endpoints. It's that level of, I am guaranteed to be talking to some software that I set up on a server somewhere else in the world that I found really attractive. But as a concept, it scales. And exactly as you say, if you are in the position of providing a forum, position of providing a messenger service, or news to a mass public and where, where you know, your imprimatur, your brand name associated with that platform, that service, that news is a really important part of your value proposition, then Onion Networking is for you because you can make sure that no one can mess with your traffic. You can offer a means, an additional means on top of the usual IP-based networking, which guarantees connectivity and trust and authenticity. There's some trade-offs, a little bit of speed reduction and so on and so forth, because you're super encrypting all of your traffic and so on and bouncing it off multiple routers. But for that trade-off, you don't have to worry about NAT. You don't have to worry about firewalls. You don't have to worry about blocking BGP routing, hijack attacks and stuff like that. There's an old saying from the early days of the internet, or at least possibly from the 1980s or thereabouts, that the internet treats censorship as damage and roots around it. And Tor is literally, its raison d'etre is to root around censorship. So it's arguable that Tor is the future of the internet. What role do you see Tor playing like in the internet in the future? And like in a really specific way, right? Something I, I was curious about is like, do we get to a point where every website has an onion site? Like, is that something that is advisable or is that even something that is possible? 
I think there will be scaling challenges to look at that sort of practically. Mm -hmm. um, but also, we work in the security industry, and threat modeling is a thing. And Tor offers a means to mitigate a certain threat model. It does this by bringing essentially an entirely new network stack to the table with a whole pile of improved and different characteristics to the TCP IP network stack. Does every website need to run Tor? Probably not. Your you know, electricity company or utilities or something like that doesn't need to. Amazon probably doesn't need to. But for certain ones, it offers extra value. And so it's something which I look at in the same way that I'm old enough to remember the conversion from HTTP to HTTPS, and also the conversion from Gopher to HTTP for that matter. We used to have a lot more diversity in the network protocols we used in the networking stacks that we used. And we all seem to have sort of been funneled into TCP IP is the only thing, and everything has to be bolted on top of that. And now it's HTTPS is the only thing, and everything's bolted on top of that. We've narrowed, 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 and re-implemented stuff on top of a single networking stack and on top of a single protocol on top of that networking stack. Uh, I'd like to see some diversity come back. And so I think this is a good possibility for people who want to do things just a little bit differently, where it adds value for their brand, for their users who want a little extra assurance whom they are talking to, and also that they're not being blocked and not being tampered and a whole pile of other cool stuff. Something that I was interested in is also like how this work is actually done, because I've never, I don't know if the term is migrated. I don't think it is. I've never made an onion site before. Like I've never done that. And so I was curious, like, what is the work that goes into it? And I know you uh, obviously right? much credit to the engineers at Twitter who took on this enormous task. Um, like you said, you, you provided a tool and you were helping. And like you said, you're, you're some sort of glue, right? But they're doing the, the hard work here. What goes into it? I would love to hear honestly, as much detail as possible to hear, because I don't know where you start and I don't even know where you end. Um, help me understand what goes into this. Well, I'll put in a quick plug for a YouTube video I posted a few years ago saying um, how and why you should start to use Onion Networking and so forth. The short version is, if you're familiar with SOX, SOX 5, and using it to connect to services via some sort of proxy, the Onion Network is a separate network stack that presents to our existing software base as a SOX5 proxy. It's that simple in terms of integration. So, you know, you tell SSH or you tell your web browser, use the SOX proxy over there. Oh, and incidentally, all of the host names end in the strange word dot onion. Um, and they have a 50, is it 54 or 56? I can't remember. Uh, 50 odd character host name. Uh, before dot onion, and that is a base32 encoded encryption key. Um, that's pretty much it as far as users are concerned, and as far as the software stack is concerned. There's a lot of magic which goes on behind it, but we typically don't need to explain that to folk. There's lots of other documentation that explains how that works much more easily. In terms of um, the other end of it, if ever you've done SSH port forwarding, what happens at the server end is you're running a Tor daemon. You've configured it to say, create an onion address with these characteristics, this encryption key, or create one spontaneously and tell me what the key is. And um, when something arrives on that onion address at port 443, redirect it to this IP address, port 443. That's it. It's a very simple shim. It's very much like doing port forwarding over SSH, but it scales really well. <laughs> 
the Tor Demon is a very tightly written piece of software and has been beaten on for years by people attacking it in different ways. And so if you put a good load balancing infrastructure on the back of it, if you take traffic in over a Tor Demon and you point it at a perfectly normal HTTPS load balancer, and then put a web tier behind that and then all of your services, databases and other things and so forth, it scales really well. It turns out most of the people who were doing dark web stuff back in the old days, having shoddy websites with really poor performance, uh, were suffering that because they had everything on one box. I was the lead engineer. I was the person who launched the Facebook Onion site in 2014. Mm -hmm. And when we launched it, we had literally a single demon running. Just one demon and thousands of people hit it simultaneously and it survived Um, because it it was just doing encryption and pushing bytes back and forth. It didn't Mm -hmm. have to do any of the Facebook stuff. That was all Mm -hmm. dealt with by the Facebook web tier. I had no idea about that. I didn't know that you could get those kinds of results, like you said, just from one box. That's... um. (laughs) That's just really cool to learn. (laughs) After I I left... um, Facebook in 2016, I I took some time out and I started meddling around with what became the tool Enterprise Onion Toolkit, which is the one which is used by New York Times, BBC, Twitter, and so forth. It's basically a bunch of Lewis scripts and some modules plugged into Nginx. And all that does is a request comes in saying nytimes something or another dot onion, and it rewrites it to be nytimes.com in the cookies, in the uh, content, in the JSON, in all of the XML and various other things. And then it passes upstream to the New York Times website. And then it does the reverse on the way out the door. That's it. It's essentially nothing more than a global search and replace for incoming traffic and outgoing traffic, excluding JPEGs and other things like that, because they don't need to be rewritten. The functionality of it is so simple it, it sounds it, like it, it's a man in the middle proxy but it's a very yeah. good one and it is very focused on this one task and it's also dirt cheap again tales from building onion sites the biggest challenge is always to get political buy-in and that can take mm. weeks months or years and the bbc one literally took two or three years because of uh, it, it wasn't on people's what's the word it, it wasn't one of their goals for the quarter that sort of thing you need <laughs> to, to um find the momentum for deploying such a solution. But eventually it landed in amongst the right team and they were worried about what the cost of running this would be. So I pinged Runa Sandvik at the New York Times and asked her what were the costs associated with running the NYT's uh, Onion site. And she came back with, I can't remember if it was 10 or $12 a month. It was a um, medium to small, single, medium to small AWS instance. It may have grown a bit since then, but it's still pretty trivial. Mm -hmm. So I said this to the chap who was the um, product manager for this aspect of the BBC. And he said, oh, so what you're saying is we could run it for a year on less than the cost of this meeting. And I just looked around at the number of people in the room and totted up their approximate salaries for one day. And I said, yeah, sure. Yeah. (laughs) That's just delightful. Like, that's all. (laughs) The moment of like you said of of trying to get momentum or political will have you found that that's changed uh, you know like since 2014 when you left facebook have you found that it's like there are more people in these organizations and so it's easier to get that will or is it like just help me understand has it changed it has improved it's it's got simpler but it's still slow going I mean, at facebook um actually backing up for a minute one of the things about Tor historically is the whole dark web thing. And people think there must be bad stuff because Tor is used by bad people. 
And to be fair, a certain amount of abuse in terms of port scanning and um, what's the word, scraping of content and so forth. A lot of that can happen over Tor and impact the likes of a site like Facebook. But I dug into it and said, okay, pick 100 accounts because I was part of the security engineering team at Facebook. I said, pick 100 accounts that arrive at Facebook over Tor hand it over to the community operations team and ask them, are these people, this hundred accounts, you know, we don't want to look at this stuff. You guys are the professionals at determining who are bad people and good people on Facebook. Of this hundred people, how many of them are good people that you would typically say are just doing perfectly normal Facebooky stuff? And out of the hundred, it was, I can't remember, 92, 95, 96. Mm -hmm. There was one person they weren't really sure because they didn't have anyone who could actually work out what language he was using. Oh, oh, Moldovan okay. or something like that. Oh, yeah. uh, but um, otherwise, yeah, 92-95% 90 of the people who were accessing Facebook over a tour were doing it for perfectly legitimate reasons. And it's a pattern I see again and again and again talking to people, uh, especially at platforms about Tor, and they say, oh, Tor, full of bad people. And then they go and look at, well, actually, all of our bad traffic tends to arrive via VPN. And they conflate Tor with VPNs. Whereas people are using Tor, they generally have a legitimate reason to be accessing your website. They're not trying to do anything too dreadful if they are actually bothering to use an onion address. We brought up a VPN, right? And I think for folks who might not know the differences, can you explain, right? Like how is a VPN different from a Tor? A VPN provider is typically a commercial entity who you pay money to and you run a little bit of software on your phone or your laptop or something like that. And all of your data is, uh, as opposed to talking to your ISP and being sent up your ISP's pipes to then fan out onto the internet at large, all of your data communications and so on, go down a magic pipe, which hopefully is encrypted, but apparently not always, um, goes through a magic pipe, which then goes to the VPN provider and then it fans out from over there somewhere a few hundred or a few thousand miles away. And it's popular to use these mechanisms in order to bypass streaming websites, geolocation filters, you know, so you can watch TV programs that are from the USA or Brazil or Spain or somewhere like that, amongst other reasons, because ostensibly it hides your identity, except of course you are paying for the use of this service and they know your account name and they probably know the encryption key and so forth. So they could actually associate any of that data that you've sent with you if it was in their interest to do so. Speaking as a security geek, I don't like VPNs. I don't use them. It's just like moving the problem sideways and paying someone else to make my life worse and more complicated. Tor, on the other hand, is volunteer run, but scales awfully well and is explicitly designed to, as a proxy service, anonymize where your data is coming from. That's great, but I don't actually find that too interesting to me either. I'm one of those mundane people who uses the internet boringly and legitimately most of the time. But on top of the Tor network is this third, second or third feature, depending on how you look at it, uh, this thing called onion networking. And this I find terribly interesting because of the extra assurance it provides. So um, that's the totally different network stack with the totally different from TCP IP security characteristics. VPNs don't give you that. That's just basically TCP IP networking at one remove. 
and you're just adding in a, a stepping stone to get out onto the internet proper. Tor does things totally differently. And I find it's that's that's the um, compelling value proposition to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you like explained it like that, too, because... Um... Like you said, that that security aspect, that the, the the stack aspect, it's just non-existent with a VPN. It's not a thing, <laughs> from my understanding, and it's not like oh, the New York Times is choosing or it's like no, it's just not there. You mentioned uh, Runa Sandvik earlier that you know she had kind of given this figure, low figure, for running an Onion site, and um, we interviewed her a couple of weeks ago on the show, and I was particularly interested because when you made this announcement on Twitter about the Onion site being launched, she was kind of batting back some like Twitter, you know, it was like a random Twitter user saying something, trying to say that like, this is a bad thing because they like associated that like, if people from Russia can post on Twitter, then they're just going to post misinformation, you know, and sort of like interpreting it in the worst possible way. Like, oh, clearly everyone is just like a, an actor for the state and they want to push disinformation on Twitter. And she was like, no, what, you know, and there's a quote here. It means everyone everywhere can reliably and securely access Twitter, regardless of what their governments have decided they should be allowed to view on the internet. And when I read that, right, I couldn't help but spot this pattern of desired government control of not only like what we see, but also what we say, uh, you know, because removing Twitter access, it, it doesn't just remove like viewing tweets it removes speaking, it removes tweeting. And I see these things, right? Like governments wanting to control what we see and also what we say. And I wonder if there's a connection between government efforts to censor online information and to also weaken end-to-end encryption, which is something that has been happening across the globe in different governments. And I've like spoken a lot to basically ask like, are these government efforts, are they related to one another, you know, of, of censoring information and also weakening end-to-end encryption? Yes. Um, <laughs> bluntly, I think there, it, it, it's a long and subtle story. One, another story from my Facebook era, uh, running the Facebook Onion site uh, during my time there, there was a Russian fighter jet shot down by the Turks over Syria. Can't remember when that was, late 2014, early 2015, something like that. And uh, the thing that struck me was the amount of Tor traffic inbound to Facebook, either over the Onion site or in the more normal proxy sense, it expanded vastly. I think it expanded like threefold or something like that Ooh. overnight. I, I came in the next morning and I looked at my graphs and I thought, what the heck is that? And it turned out that there was this big spike in traffic and of the people who were using it, there was a sort of 60-40 split between Russian and Turkish users. It was really enlightening to me because it was unprecedented, the amount of traffic specifically from Russian and Turkish users, by which I, mean, I measured it by what locale was associated with the account. So, you know, what language ah, are they speaking? Yeah. Um, didn't dig into it particularly more interestingly than that, but it, it gave me a sort of sense of the usage. And people didn't want to get news from their normal national news resources. People were trying to get a hold of independent viewpoints. People were trying to communicate with families, check in with them, all the other stuff that you would do if there was some sort of national crisis impending. And of course, they want to walk around all of the blocks that uh, the government would put in place to try and stop people in your country looking at foreign news where you might get something which is different from the narrative that the government wants to push. 
I think that's that's a standard. That's something that we are seeing today in Russia that we have seen for years in China. And this is where the government's power and influence comes from, is shaping the public narrative. And it's hard for them to do so, and it's hard for them to identify when um, topics are trending and communication is happening that they don't know about. If the communication is directly from user to user, if it's end-to-end encrypted, and where we talk about the likes of Signal and WhatsApp and end-to-end encryption for Messenger and all of the um, national uh, attempts to push back on that that we're seeing at the moment, most timely at the moment is um, the European Union wanting to mandate uh, some form of filtering in order, ostensibly in order to fight child abuse. But... Actually, it appears to be more of a generic, we want to have a means by which we can scan uh, all messages which are being sent over big platforms for arbitrary content. End-to-end encrypted messaging is contentious, and Tor is end-to-end secure communication from your client to a web server. So, of course, it's isomorphic. It's the same sort of problem, and it causes the same sort of fears. And we see those fears expressed as going dark and the government won't be able to know about terrorism. They won't be able to know about crime and combating drugs and organized crime, all of these sorts of things. And yeah, every time, at least in the United Kingdom, that um, there's some sort of terrorist event goes off, the first thing you hear is that the terrorists were known to the security services. But for some reason, that doesn't seem to have fixed the problem or made it go away. I'm glad you mentioned the going dark thing, right? Because it's something that we have here in the United States and it's happened across the globe, right? The quote-unquote crypto wars, which have been going on, I think, for like as long as I've been alive, right? And they kind of come back and they fade away and they come back. And it's just government authorities, often law enforcement, uh, often investigation or intelligence agencies saying that things are, you know, quote-unquote going dark because criminals are using end-to-end encrypted communications. And so we can no longer see what they are saying because they have gone dark. And like you said, it seems to be like a different offered rationale every 10 years. It's been terrorism before. It's right now, like you said, in the European Union, a, a desire, stated desire to catch child abuse imagery. And it seems like there's always something different. Uh, and I've only been alive for a little more than three decades, and I've already seen a couple of cards being played. And I guess my question here is like, what is the threat actually? Like why, like why do governments keep coming back with a new rationale? What is the thing that is worrying them so much? You use the word rationale. And I'm not entirely sure that it's rational. Um, not trying to be flippant. Um, fear is one of these things which preys upon the mind. It, it, it makes you less rational, less balanced. You don't look at the numbers, you go with the gut. That's part of the challenge of getting a website to adopt Onion Networking, for instance. Ooh, Tor, all that dark web stuff. Maybe we'll get into trouble if we give people more, more secure ways to access our website. No, hang on a minute, that doesn't really compute. But it takes a step and it takes a moment to see through the fog of fear. And disintermediation is scary. If you are a government which has become used to being able to wiretap people, and then that's going away, 
what are we going to do now? We might have to go back to other methods. Uh, more, We might risk missing something, and therefore we might not hit our targets, or worse, we might not get reelected. So therefore we will push hard to maintain the status quo and to expand our capabilities. It's not right. If you stopped and looked at, um, for instance, WhatsApp's approach to spam fighting using metadata analysis and um, not tracking content, but instead tracking phone numbers from user reports. Mm -hmm. This person has been reported as abusive and they are on this phone number, which is associated with that phone number over there. And you sort of build little cliques and graphs of badness, and then you go and wipe them all out. That's a very effective approach uh, approach towards spam fighting and abuse fighting in general. And it doesn't require you to break end-to-end encryption, but it's different from how things are currently done. And losing the status quo, changing things is always kind of scary. I didn't know that that's how WhatsApp font spam. I know that that's, uh, Signal has uh, said publicly that they, they do something similar, it sounds like, where they are reliant on user reports um, because true to their promise to users, they are not going to read the content of messages. They can't, through their claims, read the content of messages. And so it's like, but when a platform gets extremely popular, uh, like Signal, you know, had a huge boost like a year and a half ago. And WhatsApp, of course, was extremely popular even before the acquisition by Facebook. When something is popular, where people exist, where people are, it also becomes a target for spam. It becomes a target for online scammers. That's where the people are. I might as well try and scam them, try and get hits. And like you said, there's there's a different way to do things. You mentioned even overcoming sort of this fear, this first impression of what Tor is used for, uh, that it can be difficult to say like, oh, isn't isn't Tor, you know, for, for websites that want to launch an Onion site, isn't it? Isn't this for bad guys? Isn't this for criminals? This whole idea of these types of technologies, like they're only for bad things, like there's this misnomer, there's this misunderstanding that they're for, they were made, they were made for bad things. When you hear these kinds of criticisms, what is your response like to those characterizations? Like, and, and have you ever actually been in a, a situation where you've had to dispel those things, particularly for an organization that wanted to launch an onion site? Like, did you go through numbers? Um, is there a way to, is there a way to cut through the fear? I guess. Uh, a war story, I suppose, is the most illustrative thing regarding your first question. That the day that my team and I launched the Onion site for Facebook was one of the most reaffirming, amazing days of my life. Because apart from the fact we've been working on it for three or four months and re-engineering Facebook and trying all, all the stuff that had never really been done before, that was like cutting new ground uh, in using Tor and networking. I was in a hotel room in Silicon Valley with a colleague and we basically switched, flipped the switch at six o'clock in the morning and then alerted a couple of people, including Runa Sandvik and uh, Stephen Murdoch at UCL, saying we've switched it on and they'd been briefed about it and they'd like to sort of perhaps like to tweet about it and pointed them at our announcement of it and so forth. And then I went off for breakfast and coffee and then I got into the office about an hour later. And one of my colleagues had set up a live feed, live stream of tweets on Twitter, and it was scrolling wildly up the screen saying, Facebook have launched an onion site. How does this make sense? Because, you know, uh, it, 
Tor is clearly for anonymity. Tor is used by all these bad people to do bad things anonymously. And Facebook are letting people use it to anonymously log into Facebook using a Facebook account. You know, this doesn't make any sense. And it's because they were locked into this view of Tor as an anonymity tool. None of them had stopped to consider the uh, benefits of the cryptographically assured layer three network address that people were connecting to and of the stronger structural and yeah, uh, architectural security of Tor browser so that it's not using features of the uh, standard Firefox browser, which would create a larger digital footprint. So it's discrete networking. It's, it, it, it's not too overt, but it's of high integrity. It's a way for people to connect to your website with greater trust and assurance. Nobody had thought about Tor in those terms previously, as far as I can tell. And that's the line which I've been repeating ever since, is that if you care about your users, if you have a solid reason to be concerned that your users can access your website with additional trust and assurance above and beyond what is afforded by the HTTPS stack on top of TCP IP, then maybe Onion Networking is for you. That's how I talk about it nowadays. And I find that's where you get the most sort of sympathetic audiences amongst enterprises when they have definitely got, like, for instance, the BBC, like The Intercept, and like several other organizations which are looking at this in terms, uh, especially given the um, recent furore about abortion and Supreme Court and uh, rights in the United States people are starting to see that there are times when you want to be able to connect to a website discreetly and without a big digital footprint and not being overseen by authorities and not being seen by your ISP and not creating big log files somewhere. There are benefits to this sort of thing, even in countries like the United States. So I see quite a future for Tor onion networking as long as people start to articulate these benefits in a way which people can grasp. Alec, that is all I had for today's episode. Thank you again for coming on today's show. To our listeners at home, a few items. If you'd like to watch the YouTube video that Alec mentioned about the value of onion networking, you can find it in our show notes for today's episode, which are in the full description of today's episode that you can find in your preferred podcast player, whatever it may be. Also in our show notes are links to Alec's blog and to a separate video about how WhatsApp uses metadata analysis to fight spam and abuse, which Alec also alluded to in today's episode. As always, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. In our next episode, we speak with Kim Lewandowski about securing the software supply chain. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from Unminus.com. Today's show was edited by Eric Johnson from LightningPod.fm. Thank you, folks. Thank you.